Excited that we get to continue this series in the book of Colossians. I know uh, for a lot of us, it has been just this great experience to dive deep into this book and to, to sort of pick it apart and let God speak to us. The first two chapters of, this, of the book almost exclusively focused on who God was and what he was doing in the world and the greatness of who Jesus is and how we are connected to that story, the great story of God. And then when we got to chapter three, it began to turn this corner to get very practical. It it was kind of like it was saying, if God is who God is, and you are who God says you are, you are redeemed, you are saved, you are hidden in Christ, how should we act as people of God, as followers of Jesus? And it used this beautiful illustration of, here are these things that you need to take off, these part of your old life that you don't need anymore. And instead, put on these these new attributes, these new attributes that come directly from the nature of who God is and who he's created you to be. And it goes on, it starts talking about how we interact with each other, what kind of Christian life looks like. And then the passage we're going to dive into today really starts asking the question, okay, what should your home life look like? What should your family look like? As a follower of Jesus, how do these virtues, these beautiful attributes of who God is, how should they affect us where we live, where we sleep, who we are closest to? A couple weeks ago, I was preaching, and um, I I got a little bit confessional. I shared about how a time earlier that weekend, I lost my temper. And the passage I was talking about said, put away maliceness and anger and hatred. And and I, I shared that I had failed in all of those areas just the day before. And I was telling that story to my buddy, Pedro, who works here at the office. And he was laughing about it. He's like, I've never seen you lose your temper. I don't believe it. No way. You're all even keel. And that night, Olivia, my oldest daughter, was here in the office. And uh, Pedro goes, hey, Olivia, your dad says you lose your temper sometime. And she kind of looked at me like, do I have permission to say this? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you can tell him, Olivia. And like, she just started glowing. She was like, oh, let me tell you. He gets so mad and his face gets all red. And he starts banging his tools around. There's always tools in my hand when I get the most angry. And um, I started getting embarrassed. I was like, all right, enough's enough, honey. You know, you could have just said, yeah, he gets angry sometimes. But the reality of it is, I don't think I'm unlike you. I think probably... You and I share something in common that sometimes the worst vices that I have, my worst attributes, come out in my home. And I think the opposite is also true. Some of the most beautiful attributes that I have are exhibited in my home. And that's why it's so important that as we look about how do we live the life God has called us to, that we specifically apply it to how do we live that in the context of our families, in the context of our relationships with one another. What should that look like in our homes? And that's exactly the question that this passage is going to get at. Now, before we, wanna, before we dive into this, I just want to um, put a couple of things out there. First thing, this passage is written to a culture that's very different than ours. 
And there are things in this, cult, in this passage that talk about gender roles, it talks about slavery, and it just sort of lays them out there and it doesn't fully bring a nice clean bow around it. So I'm asking you as we kind of go through this, we're going to talk about the culture and we're going to talk about those things, but I ask you not to just sort of tune out and just sort of say, okay, this passage isn't for me. I should have gone to the, the church up the street because this is too hard. <laughs> I don't want to think about this. Stay with us because I think there are great truths in there that speak to us that can transform our families with the good news of the gospel. The second thing I want us to just be aware of is I don't think this passage was meant to be some sort of prescriptive diagram for exactly how societies are supposed to interact and how families are supposed to interact. I think what this is is a description of how can the gospel transform the way I interact with my family? How can the gospel transform me? and my relationships with others. So it's not some sort of call back to a a past ancient culture where slavery was legal and gender roles were clearly defined. That's, I don't believe, is the point of this passage. And I think if we look at it just for that, we can miss the even more profound truths that it it wants to speak to our lives. So let me uh, begin as we we look at this, and I want us to start back in verse 16, so that's a little bit about where we left off last week, but I think that gives context and, and um, kind of a fuller picture of what Paul is getting at here. So starting in verse 16, uh, Colossians three sixteen says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husband at his fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So this is a powerful passage about how the gospel can change us, can transform us. So give you a little bit of kind of context. It's written to the church of Colossae, which is sort of smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire. And within the Roman Empire, their civic and kind of social structure was based on a system of patriarchy. That you had these patriarchal family structures, these large families that that typically lived together. And in each of those structures, the only legal representative of that family was the head of house, the lord of the house, the husband of the house. And in that context, they were legally responsible for all the business and going-ons of them and all the members of their house. And they were actually legally responsible to hold their entire families in obedience to them. Wives were to be obedient to their husband. Children, if they had slaves, that they were to be obedient to them. And the, the patriarch, the head of the house, had so much power in that context 
that if their child disobeyed, for example, it was their responsibility to punish their child however they saw fit. And that punishment could have included selling their kids into slavery. It could have included putting their children to death. And that was the responsibility of the, the father. And that is the context that this passage is written to. And right away, when Christianity comes into this context, it begins to pull at the threads of the injustices, the ugliness of this system. And all of a sudden, Christians find themselves trying to figure out how do they live within this system? How do they live lives of justness and fairness? How can we exhibit lives of mutual submission to each other, of love, of sacrificial giving within this structure? We see in the, the book of Corinthians a similar letter to this that, that women um, are coming to Christ uh, before their husbands are coming to Christ. And they're beginning to ask these questions. What do I do now? How do I live within this family structure? Should I leave my husband? Should I go out on my own? What should I do? And, and God is speaking to people in those places. And so Paul is writing to this church helping them navigate, helping them see how can they apply the power of the gospel to the culture and the context in which they find themselves in. And I think one of the powerful truths we see in this passage is that the gospel speaks to every one of us in every culture, and yet it doesn't just affirm the culture we live in. There's this subversive power of the gospel that transforms our family. It transforms our dynamics within that culture for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the good news of Jesus. I think as we look at this passage, uh, this passage isn't about changing all of society. It's specifically about changing us. It's about changing you and I. It isn't some sort of dictation for how all marriages should do or how civic action should happen. It's not a call for widespread social action. I think there are other passages that clearly speak more directly to that in Scripture. But this particular passage is about us. It's about how do we live as godly men and women who have been declared by God to be holy, to be loved children of God that are to act in compassion and love and forgiveness and putting on love that draws everything together in perfect harmony. And that begins to transform how families and structures operate within societies. Uh, Looking specifically at slavery in this passage, uh, the estimates are in this time that about a third of people in the Roman world were enslaved. It's about a third of society. So within this church, about a third of the people who are reading this letter or having this letter read to them are slaves. Many of them probably are not capable of changing their social system. They're, they're in the system they're in. Now, there's been dialogue about slavery in that time versus sort of the American slavery. And, and there's clearly differences between the two forms. But at the end, it's still one person owning another person. It still goes directly contrary to us seeing each other as being made in the image of God, being representatives of who God is in the world. And it's it's wrong. It's evil. It's ugly. And so Paul is speaking into this of how do we bring love and and, um, 
and the gospel into this context. And again, Christianity at this point in time is still a pretty minority religion. It probably wasn't within their ability to transform all of society, but what they could do and what they could be responsible for was how they interacted with each other. One of the best examples we see is when we read the book of Colossians alongside of the book of Philemon. And it's pretty amazing to see how Paul sees this transfer out in specifically in Philemon's life. So again, Paul is bringing value to those who are slaves because these people who are owned by somebody else, how valuing it is that the word of God is speaking directly to them. It's not something that their masters are supposed to you know, pass on to them. This is their word that even though they might not have control in every aspect of their life, they have control to stand before God themselves and be righteous and to live out the truth of the gospel in their life. And masters have a responsibility not just to keep their family in line, but to be fair and just and right. So Paul, he writes this letter to this guy named Philemon. Philemon lived in kind of the same area, and there's a good chance that both the letter of Colossians and the letter of Philemon were sent by the same courier at the same time. So the letter, basically, Philemon is a a rich man and somebody who apparently was a very godly individual. And because he lived in a society where slavery was normal within society, he had slaves under him. And one of those slaves was a guy named Onesimus. And something happens, we don't exactly know what happened, and Onesimus uh, runs away from home. He runs away from the house. And he finds himself in the company of Paul. He probably sought Paul out. He probably had heard of Paul by reputation or met him. And and he goes and he finds Paul. And together, the two of them are doing something. They're working for the sake of the gospel together. And at some point in time, they decide that Onesimus needs to go back to Philemon and make things right. And I love it that, that Paul writes this letter. And I'll be honest, what I wish the letter would say is I wish the letter would say, I right, listen, Philemon, you terrible, horrible person. How dare you have slaves? What's wrong with you? And it doesn't do that. But it does something that's really powerful. It does something that goes beyond just what we call each other at titles, what we distinguish between our social economic status. It calls Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother. Listen to what it says here. If you want to uh, flip over to Philemon, or you can just listen along starting in verse 8. It's only one chapter, so there's no chapters. Just verse 8. says, According though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you my, for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useful to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer not to do, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might receive him back forever, not as a bondservant, but more than a servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, 
but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him back as you would receive me. How powerful the gospel is in this context. That isn't just about changing some sort of superficial titles that they refer to each other. It isn't just about changing status. It is about changing the very way we look and respond and interact with each other. He says, receive him back as a brother. I don't know about you, but I think this undercuts the very injustice of slavery. How do I own my brother? How do I receive him back as somebody who welcomes fully? And it reminds me of what was just a couple of verses earlier in Colossians 3.11, where it's basically talking about the gospel, about how we are made new in Jesus. And it says, because of this, there is no Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, that Christ is all and in all. That there's something very powerful about the fact that we are one in Christ, that we have come together, and that breaks down those barriers that we put up between each other. And in Christ, there is no room for racism. In Christ, there is no room for sexism. In Christ, there is no room for dominating one another for our own personal gain. In fact, our purpose is to serve one another for their sake. And that's what we see played out here in this. And it's pretty cool. Um, Church tradition teaches, and it's, it's impossible to know how accurate that might be, but church tradition teaches that Onesimus went back to Philemon, that he stayed a slave, but the relationship changed completely. In fact, Onesimus maybe became one of the, the, the second bishop of the church of Ephesus, and in that Philemon, his master served under him and Onesimus became a spiritual leader of it, totally disrupting the social roles that they had placed in place for each other. And I think about that in the context of our families, in the context of our relationship with one another. What if we loved each other in such a way that it transformed our relationship with each other, that, that respect and love and compassion and forgiveness became the foundations for our re- relationships. We're a diverse church, right? We all come from different backgrounds. We have different cultural expectations of what the family looks like, of how families should interact with each other. We probably have different definitions even of what respect and honor and love and obedience should look like within our family. And I think this passage is so powerful because it speaks to all of us regardless of our culture. And yet it challenges all of us because in all of our culture, in all of our selfish, humanistic worldview, there is this sense where we are trying to get what is ours, to build ourselves up. And the gospel challenges that. It says, no, you don't exist just for yourself. You exist for the others in your home. So as we kind of continue on, some other things that really stood out to me in this passage is, one is the importance of our home life to God. You know, as we, we look through this, it goes through and it gives this beautiful description of how our, our morality should look, the virtues we should put on, the way we should interact with each other as a church. But then it, it gives really detailed explanation for how our homes should look as Christian homes. And what that says to me is that, that God cares deeply about how we interact with each other, how we love each other in our families. 
in verse 14 of chapter 3 of the same chapter. It says that above all, put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. How many want harmony in your family? We all do, right? Especially Thanksgiving. Like that's the, the most common thing. You hear that in like secular radio and on TV. I just wanted to have a calm, peaceful Thanksgiving meal. We all want harmony, but none of us want to love each other because love each other costs something. Harmony is just something nice to receive, right? But in this context, God is saying, I want you to embrace this love above all, that this is the greatest virtue that we as followers of Jesus can embrace is love. And that is what draws things together in perfect harmony. And if we don't have that harmony and love in our family, I think it cripples our ability to have love and harmony outside of our family. If I came here and I was just this great pastor and I was super loving and I was super compassionate and everybody thought, oh, wow, Nate really cares about us. And you went and you saw my marriage was falling apart and my kids were completely rebelling against me and had no respect for me. It would undercut my ability to do ministry here at this church. If I was so generous and gave everything I had to the poor, but you looked and you saw in my family that I didn't have love with my spouse, what value does that have? And our homes, our relationships with our families is deeply important to God. And there's something really beautiful that happens in the family. I think in our family becomes kind of a practice ground for the life that God has called us to. It's where our virtues can be multiplied, but also our vices become multiplied. I was hanging out with a buddy of mine this past weekend, and he's a microbiologist. And he was telling me about all the fancy technology they have in his lab and how they could do genome sequencing on all these different things and really high-tech stuff. But what was interesting to me was at the core of what they do, they're still doing the exact same thing I did in biology class in high school, they got their little Petri dish with their little jello stuff in there, and they put the bacteria or the viruses or whatever in that Petri dish, and then they just multiply and they grow, and they get enough of that so then they can do their tests on it. And maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but isn't that kind of what our families are like? What is in our soul, what is in our heart, when it comes to our family, it sort of gets multiplied in the context of our home. Those brokenness get multiplied, but also those beautiful things that God is doing in our life gets multiplied. I can think of you know, very few examples of love more pure and beautiful than an elderly couple that have loved each other for a lifetime and have practiced that love for a lifetime. And now one of the, the partners is watching their spouse pass away and they're caring for them in their final days. To me, that's a picture of just that love and compassion, forgiveness that has grown and grown and grown in the context of their home over a lifetime. But the negative example of that also holds true. We've all seen what happens when sexual immorality goes awry in a family or when anger and wrath and hatred and lack of forgiveness multiply. Because of that, our our home life matters to God, and it should matter to us. It matters deeply to our spiritual growth. The other thing I see in this passage is that we all have responsibility for how we respond, how we act within our home. 
right? There are several different categories of family members in this passage, and each member of the family has responsibility. There are things that they are called to do in the context of their family. Now, again, this is incredibly countercultural because before this time, the expectation would have been, okay, head of house, here is the sort of attributes you need to maintain for your family. You need to discipline well so that everybody obeys you, so that you have a well-ordered house, so that everything flows together. And this turns it around and says, no, we all have responsibility in this. That, that husbands, you have the opportunity to love, to submit to your husband, not because they're a great person, not because they deserve it, because it's pleasing to the Lord. Husbands, you are called to love your wives, not because they're lovable, not because they made love to you, not because it feels good to love them, but because that is what God has called you to. And part of you living out your hope and your love of what God has done for you is loving your spouse. Children, you're supposed to obey your parents. Now, we have any kids here? A couple of you guys, I see. I mean, I guess we're all somebody's kids, right? Um, okay. Just a heads up, sometimes your parents, I'll speak to you because you look at the right age, okay? Sometimes your mom tells you, obey me because I know everything. Does she ever say that? Your mom knows a lot. (laughs) But there are times that our parents, we as parents, we don't know. And we make bad choices. And there is great hope in this passage that children can obey their parents Not because mom and dad are always right, but they can obey their parents because it pleases the Lord. Because it is what brings honor to God. And it turns it around and says, parents, you've got a responsibility too. You are to, to train up your children to discipline them in a way that does not discourage them. If you were to look at that from the opposite, from the positive, you could say, we are responsible for disciplining our kids in a way that encourages them. And in the context of this passage, what are we to encourage them with? The good news of who Jesus is. This is our responsibility. Our responsibility is not just to train up kids that look good and act right, that become our future inheritance someday or our future retirement plan someday. We're training them up to encourage them in the Lord. And it turns around even to to servants. And it goes on this actually a very long description of of servants saying, hey, you don't just need to obey your master because you want to please your master. No, you can do that as pleasure to God. That is not just about serving him because we all have a master in heaven. And know this, that God has prepared an inheritance for you. And masters, you better be fair. You better be just. Remember that we all serve a master in heaven. It's not partial. And we all carry responsibility in that. As I was preparing for the the message this week, I was looking at a bunch of different cultural things from that context, that time. And I came across this doctor from that day, a guy named Serenus, who um, is actually credited throughout kind of medical history as being the father of women's health. Let that title sink in for a second. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that you have a father of women's health. But um, this guy was kind of the, the, wrote some of the first textbooks on this, and he sort of mixed medicine and his sociological understanding of the world together. And in one of his textbooks, he writes that the chief end of a wife 
is to produce offspring. And so because of that, she shouldn't worry about her pleasure or her place in the family or her place in the world. All she should be concerned with is her own fertility. And that's the context that Paul's writing to, and he turns that completely around. He goes, no, as Christian homes, we don't just exist to produce some sort of thing for each other. We exist to love each other, to care for each other, to submit to one another. So husbands, your wives aren't just there to give you strong offspring to help you out in the field. Kids, you don't exist just to make your parents proud. We exist for the sake of loving each other and we all carry responsibility in that. So take that responsibility seriously. And I think this speaks really hopefully to all of us because most of us probably, if, if we were honest, there's a certain amount of dysfunction that exists in our homes, right? All of us have a certain amount of brokenness. And some of that brokenness, we probably don't have the power to fix. There's dysfunction in our families that we can't change. And yet, we have a responsibility, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the power we think we might have or don't have in a relationship, we have the responsibility to embrace the virtues that God has demonstrated to us in our family, to live out the gospel. We can choose to be people of compassion. We can choose to be people of love. We can choose to submit to one another. We can choose obedience, not because the person we're doing it might be deserving of that, but because the God who saved us is deserving of that action in our lives. Another thing I, I see in this passage is that our home lives can be an act of worship. In other words, that the way we love each other, the way we care for each other, can bring honor and pleasure and glory to God. Okay, in this passage, again, it, it kind of, I think the context of it really is found in verse 13, where it says that in everything you do and say, do it for the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God. That's why we do these things, because by doing these things, we are doing this in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God. He goes through in three of the six sort of categories of family members in this. He says, do your act as unto the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And then slaves, obey your masters. And actually gives three different rationales for how that can bring pleasure and honor to God in that. I think it's kind of interesting that that this passage really focuses that kind of command to do it as to pleasure to the Lord, to those in the relationship who have sort of less power, okay, the wives, the children, and the slaves. And I, I think the reason is two-part. One is there is an assumption. Most often people who have power in a relationship feel the responsibility that they bring to that relationship. So it's assumed that all of us have a responsibility to serve and to love each other as unto the Lord, there's another thing I think it goes back to that fact that, that all of us can do what God has called us to do regardless of the circumstance we find ourselves in as pleasure and worship to God. That there is no circumstance by which we can't treat each other as the Lord has called us to treat each other. We're not just products of our circumstance. We're not just stuck in the situations that we're in that we can actually embrace those things. We can take great pleasure in knowing that we are serving the other and serving God at the same time. In my family, uh, I, I don't love doing dishes. In fact, I think it's fair to say I hate doing dishes. 
And as we distributed sort of domestic tasks in our house, I drew the dishes card 15 years ago. That's the card I drew. And um, I know that for my wife, I can show my love for my wife if I do the dishes without complaining uh, or making groaning noises the whole time I do it. And I think there's something really awesome about this, to know that even as I'm scrubbing dishes, as I'm scrubbing the greasy mole pot or whatever it is, that with every scrub, I can not only demonstrate my love for my wife, but I can actually be participating in worship. The same worship that we all just participated in up here together. And it's a powerful thing, and it's powerful to live it out in our families. Imagine it this way. Imagine you were going to a, like a health and fitness class and you pull into the parking lot there of your gym and you look over and in the car next to you, your fitness teacher is in there and she's smoking a big cigar and chewing down like a bacon wrapped deep fried Twinkie. Okay. <laughs> and then you go into your fitness and she gives you a bunch of healthy living tips, right? It, it seems incongruous, doesn't it? In the same way, if we come here and we say, God, I love you, I worship you, but I'm not willing to do it in the most domestic, simplistic tasks in my home. It's incongruous. And I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to devalue at all what we do here, because I think there's something sacred and beautiful about us coming together in an act of corporate worship and together joining our voices and praising God. I'm just saying it should flow throughout our lives. The last thing I, I see in this passage is that our home life can be an illustration of the gospel. When we love each other, when we submit to each other, when we're obedient to each other, it actually is playing out this ancient and profound and sacred narrative, and that is this narrative of the gospel. Look at all the different commands that are in this. The command to submit, to love, to obey to not discourage or to encourage, to work hard for the sake of God, to be just, to be fair. Now imagine each of those were sort of notes played together in a melody. And that melody was the story of Jesus. That's the story of him, isn't it? That the most profound picture of submission we see is Jesus. Philippians 2 says that, that he humbled himself to, to life and death on a cross. And he gave up the very privileges that he was experiencing in heaven to come. Why did he do that? He did it out of love for you and I. A love that is most clearly seen with the cross. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. And on the night that he was about to be betrayed, the night that he was about to go to, to be arrested, He's praying there in the garden and he's saying, God, if you can take this cup away from me, please do it. I don't want to go through the cross. I don't want to experience this pain. I don't want to experience this suffering. And yet he chose to be obedient to God. And then we see his hard work in our lives and we see him now as our judge who judges in fairness and righteousness And when we live out these attributes in our home, we're showing each other the truths of the gospel. We're teaching each other what it means to be saved by Jesus. We're teaching our kids what it means to to 
experience love from God himself. We're experiencing what submission looks like. And all these begin to play out within the context of our family. So now we're about to go into Thanksgiving, right? And some of you are about to spend way more time with your family than you have in the past three months combined, right? And all the funkiness that family is is about to become real. And I think what a great time to apply this passage. What is the family member that you're called to put on the new self? To put on the the new identity that you have in Jesus. To get rid of that old self, that old way of doing life that you no longer need. And to embrace the fullness of what God has called you to. What is that going to look like this week? So maybe uh, kind of some homework assignment. Maybe between now and uh, Thanksgiving. Maybe reread this passage again. And read it specifically asking the question, God, convict me, teach me, help me live with the power of who you are lived out in my life, in this family, in my home, with my family members this week. So let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship together. God, we are just um, amazed that you continue to speak to us, that you are not absent that you have not left us to figure it out on our own, but you are convicting us, you are calling us to yourself, that you are challenging us with your truth. God, we praise you that you um, intimately care about our home life, that you care about the way we treat each other, that we can bring honor and glory to you by simple things and hard things. So God, we praise you, we love you, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.